Hey, so evolution through the lens of synthetic biology. Like every lens, it may be distorting, but it may also offer new views. Okay, and um, I was glad to notice this. So I, I grew up in Transylvania, Eastern Europe, and it's amazing how versatile things can be, because this can be used for pointing. In geometry class, you could draw straight lines. It could be used for punishment. <laughs> so it's kind of a nostalgic uh, thing to be able to use this. But uh, of course, the new things are also useful. Um, but you could not really punish with this. And uh, you could excite cells. So I think some people uh, can use specific wavelengths to excite GFP. But uh, let's get to the topic. So um, basically, uh, I'm a physicist uh, with a PhD in physics. And over the years, I uh, tried to understand biology. And um, as a, in that process, it's almost unavoidable to run into evolution. So this is going to be uh, kind of my perspective of how I encountered evolution. Um, so here is this. Uh, famous quote uh, by Tedasius Dobzhansky, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution, and that's starting to make a lot of sense to me. But um, So what is evolution? And uh, you are really the specialists here, but a uh, concise definition could be changing population structure over successive generations. So if you have a population of individuals with different uh, properties, uh, then uh, under selection, a selective event can come and only a part of that population uh, survives or um, part of the population grows better than the other depending on their uh, uh, properties. And then at the next selective event, um, uh, there may be or may not be change, but that's because there was a selective event here. So basically, the change in um, the number and, and uh, number of shapes in the population, the fraction of certain shapes, is uh, kind of evolution. And evolution is not an abstract thing. Of course, it can happen over uh, billions of years. But it can also happen every day in the lab. So these are showing just yeast colonies uh, growing in the lab. And very often, you see these wedges um, emerging, uh, meaning that there was something here. Uh, most of the time, people assume these are mutants that then uh, expand. And based on the curvature here, you can actually uh, infer whether this is uh, advantageous or uh, disadvantageous. Actually, with disadvantageous, it would disappear quickly. But this is, you see, it's curving outside, so it seems to have an advantage. Uh, similarly, you can do it with fluorescence. Sometimes uh, uh, fluorescence uh, intensity changes. Uh, you can see it more dramatically here. So this is an everyday thing. But what is really necessary for evolution? So uh, to summarize in a short statement, it's selectable and heritable variation. And what I'm trying to show here is what if that's not pre uh, certain uh, properties not present. So variation, variation. Uh, what if there is no variation? If every individual is the same from some aspect, then a selective event comes, and either the whole population disappears, or um, everybody still uh, survives and stays the same. So there is no change in population structure. The heritability. Um, if you have a population, a selective event comes, and only a part of the population makes it these red circles. But then if the uh, property is not heritable, then they regenerate the original population structure. So that's not evolution over uh, between these two extremes. 
Uh, finally, selectability. So individuals can be different, but if those differences do not uh, result in fitness differences when selection comes, then um, once again, there is no change in population structure, so there is no uh, evolution. So there has to be some selectability um, um, uh, to, for uh, population structure to change and evolution to happen. All right, so variation. Variation is important, and there are various forms of variation. Um, specifically, uh, most typically, variation is assumed to be genetic, uh, and that's very typical. Um, it's assumed in cancer, in drug resistance, that uh, particular individuals have different genotypes, uh, point mutations, uh, deletions, and so on, which make them different, and uh, then they behave differently when selective events come. So that's definitely true. However, there are other forms of variation. Uh, for example, this is a, a growing yeast colony, and you can imagine that a yeast cell here at the edge experiences a very different environment than a yeast cell in the middle, just because it's exposed to nutrients better, uh, it's exposed to cells, other cells differently. So there is environmental variation. Um, finally, besides genetic and environmental variation, there is stochastic variation which means that uh, two cells, which are completely identical genetically, and uh, they are in the same environment, can still be very different. How is that possible? Well, we know that uh, cells and what they do really depend a lot on molecular events. So for example, imagine that you have a protein that moves around and random by random motion. So molecules, unless they are really super cool temperatures, they tend to move uh, randomly in solution. That's Brownian motion. And even though the cells have the same molecular makeup, uh, this uh, protein can move away from DNA. This protein can move towards DNA just by chance. And by bumping into DNA, it can cause a transcriptional event, which results in many transcripts. So this cell becomes very different from this cell, even though they started identically. So that's stochastic variation, different from these other two. And uh, we've been studying uh, a lot this type of variation. But ultimately, the big question I'm trying to understand is how do all of these types of variation interact with each other? So how do they affect each other? How does noise affect evolution? How does evolution affect noise? Uh, and, and so on. So um, it's, it's an interesting question to explore with specific biological systems that we set up to um, look at these questions. Okay, so uh, specifically here, I will, I will talk uh, about uh, this chain of, uh, uh, of um, uh, interactions. So for example, uh, gene networks, and we, we saw that there is this stochastic variation noise. So one question is how do gene networks affect noise? Because genes don't live by themselves, they are parts of regulatory networks. So those regulatory networks may modulate noise. And as you saw in the previous slide, uh, slide noise is unavoidable. So as long as you have these Brownian motion uh, chemical um, reaction events, then you, you will get noise. However, this noise can be morphed, can be modified, uh, tuned up and down by gene regulatory networks. And this is just a schematic illustration of one. So you can imagine three genes, and they regulate each other through the, with their protein products. And uh, you can summarize. Uh, this interaction by just connecting those boxes. All right, and uh, how do we uh, know about noise? How do we measure 
uh, noise um, at the gene expression level, well, you can take a promoter and replicate it uh, in the genome. And instead of gene two, you can put a fluorescent reporter there. And once you do that, uh, the assumption is that whatever this promoter does, this promoter will do as well. Um, there are some uh, details there, but it's a fairly reasonable assumption. And then by measuring uh, the uh, uh, individual cell brightness, uh, which reflects how uh, much GFP or uh, protein product you have, this specific protein product emits light when you hit it with a laser, then you can uh, get an idea of how variable the cell population is. So then you can get these distributions. Uh, with a device called the flow cytometer, where you just run cells through and it automatically excites the cells with laser and then it does the reading too for you and it gives you these distributions very rapidly. And then from these distributions, uh, you can start getting properties such as the mean expression, what is the average expression in that population, but you can get single cell level information such as the standard deviation, how much individual cells deviate from that mean. And uh, um, that's a lot more information because the mean for a cell population is one value. But when you get the standard deviation or individual values for single cells, that's millions of data points rather than one data point. And um, it's just an, uh, a huge amount of information which is getting to something else. It's not macroscopic. And I will be talking about macroscopic measurement versus microscopic measurement. In addition to the flow cytometer, you can look at the cells in a microscope and you can really see their brightness. This is an example of genetically identical cells. Actually, it's a microcolony that developed from one cell and you see that the middle is very bright. The uh, periphery is very dark. So they are very uh, different phenotypically. Do people worry about the fact that inserting the GFP changes the, 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 the expression of the gene itself because you're competing for the promoter? Now. It's a very good point. Yeah, definitely does. Uh, it also depends on the promoter and its regulators. So usually when you grow cells um, with plenty of nutrients and um, um, so there is plenty of polymerases, ribosomes, then uh, the effect is probably not drastic. When you, uh, it also depends on the amount of regulators here. So if you have low amount of regulators, definitely there can be a competition. Uh, it, it happens. But uh, um, yeah, so uh, in that case, you would have to build models for that. We usually grow cells in, in plenty of sugar. And uh, this we put, them, uh, put this GFP under a strong promoter. So usually, we don't consider it an issue. But, but it's a good point. It's actually a, a measurement tool. So um, it's like a thermometer that you can insert, and it will modify your <laughs> uh, the water temperature. But if the water volume is big, then you can probably ignore that to some degree. It's, it's a tool um, which has its limitations, certainly. But um, going from macroscopic, such as the mean, to microscopic, um, we can make one more step and talk about fitness. So um, uh, basically, fitness of a cell population is uh, the um, average contribution of an individual uh, to the next generation. So, and it's very typically uh, described by the growth equation. So if you have exponential growth, then um, uh, basically fitness could be defined as uh, the change in, uh, in number divided by the existing number per unit time. 
Okay, but then this emerges from individual cell division events. So you can again uh, look at the macroscopic fitness and the microscopic fitness. And I think in this uh, audience it's better to talk about individual fitness and group fitness. But um, uh, basically it's, it's, uh, this results from this. And in this talk there will be no interactions between individuals. So they are just simply growing and replicating dependent though on their phenotype. So that will be the, um, the only uh, uh, non-trivial thing here. A quick question regarding yes. the, the variance that you see out there. So given that noise is inherent in the system, what's, for a very non-noisy Gene, you would still see. You would still see some variation. Yeah. And that's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's where, um, for non noisy genes, you still see a, a distribution. That's where you need to account for the instrument. So the instrument, even if you run beads through the instrument, will give you a distribution. People do that. Uh, we do that. Uh, this is how actually this instrument is calibrated. Now, you can go into arguments that the beats could be different, but let's suppose they are identical. And that distribution is kind of giving you the, um, the uh, variation from the instrument. Now, uh, if you see anything larger than that, it's uh, fairly safe to assume that that's coming from biology. And uh, uh, the distributions we see, uh, so for uh, non-noisy genes, there is some uh, quantity called CV, or coefficient of variation. And I don't know where to put it, uh, so people see. So coefficient of variation is uh, standard deviation divided by the mean. So it's basically that uh, uh, width of the distribution divided by, by the mean. So CV is equal to standard deviation over mean. And that's what people tend to use to measure noise. So it's not just the width, but it's also the width in terms of the mean. So what's the range? Uh, okay, so for non-noisy genes, uh, typically you get, uh, and it depends on, on the organism too, but um, you typically for, for low, you can get something like 10%, uh, that's very low, uh, to maybe 30% um, CV, and for high, you can go quite high, and you could go to uh, maybe 50%, um, all the way to 250%. We have one case where we had 250%. So um, you can deviate uh, two and a half times away from, from the mean. And I will show you. In, in what cells? Uh, those are yeast cells, yeah, that we uh, put a little circuit in. So it depends on the circuit. Uh, it depends on the cell type, but it depends a lot on what kind of uh, network uh, is regulating. What about ordinary housekeeping genes? What sort of ordinary, yeah, that's a great question. So typically, well, luckily in yeast, this has been done. And people have, uh, there is a library of yeast strains where individual proteins were tagged with GFP, meaning that proteins were fused to GFP and this library was measured. And about 2,000 strains or over were measured. So in yeast, um, an emergent thing was that there are two types of genes. And uh, the, there's a type of gene which is low noise. And there's a, oh, I don't think this is visible, but. Um, yeah, there are two types of genes. Oh. Okay, uh, let me put here yeast. So in yeast, uh, there seem to be two types of genes. There are some with low noise, some with high noise. Uh, low noise genes tend to be housekeeping. Um, 
uh, high noise genes tend to be stress response genes. And there are a bunch of properties associated with these classes. This was, was done by Jonathan Weissman. Um, and there are specific properties about uh, the way these genes are expressed. So for example, low noise genes uh, tend to use the, this so-called TF2D pathway. And high noise genes tend to use this SAGA pathway. SAGA is um, uh, uh, chromatin remodeling. Uh, Factor. So uh, it also implies that high noise genes tend to have a lot more regulation. They tend to be repressed under normal conditions. When stress comes, then they uh, tend to uh, be upregulated, whereas housekeeping genes uh, are the, do the reverse. And uh, they are much less regulated. They are, tend to be open for expression. Um, and there are details here. So low and high as, as now are not. Uh, absolutely low and high, and there is another factor there. Because just based on the level of expression, you expect noise to be high and low. There is a relationship on that. Um, and basically, if you plot log of CV, CV squared, I think, but it could be just CV, as a function of uh, uh, log of mean, then you can get a straight line um, here. And the slow and high in that paper is defined as um, so genes can align with this or they can deviate. And it's defined by this deviation from this uh, uh, trend. Okay, and, and we can go into that, um, how that works. But in that data set, the, the, the highest was, I think the highest noise was 60%. So, so it's uh -huh. interesting that you have something a lot, a lot higher. Well, uh, it's an interesting point. Basically, they didn't measure the whole genome. Yeast has 6,000 genes, they measured about 2,000. Uh -huh. And they couldn't measure, well, they measured them in two different conditions. But both conditions were uh, sugar rich, uh, no stress around. So uh, a lot depends on what happens in the remain remainder of the genome, 4,000 genes, and what happens in other conditions. So there's another paper, I think, where various stress conditions were uh, explored. And that was by Nama Barkai's group. And they actually measured fewer genes, but in more conditions. And uh, I, I would like to look at those numbers. I don't remember the numbers there. Somehow, I mean, is it a, a question what we call noise? Or yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, this could just be different regulatory programs at different sort of uh, activation or repression as a response well, to stress. So it's in some sense. But uh, how would they be activated is the question. Because these cells grow in shaking tubes. Uh, you know, so there's no way for cells to have different environments. They constantly sweep the tube. Uh, they are, have identical genomes. So if you're careful, um, you can pretty much uh, minimize the number of mutants in a tube. So there is no genetic component, no environmental component. There is still a, a cell-dependent component. So cell can, cells can have different age and uh, different size and different factors like that. However, what they do with that is they do gating. So there are two factors besides fluorescence in flow cytometry. You get the forward scatter and the side scatter. Um, these are two, uh, as the laser hits the cell, um, there is a, a forward scatter. So within a certain angle, you can measure intensity. And then there is side scatter. So there are detectors, um, let's call this detector side, detector forward. And these intensities uh, relate to cell geometry. So for example, forward scatter relates to cell size. Side scatter, people assume, relates to uh, granularity. Uh, 
So how many, uh, let's say, particles are in the cell? And basically, when you do this experiment, what you get is a cloud. So what these, the Weissman group did was they took the cloud and then they took a very small window in the cloud. And we do that too, basically saying that we, let's try to only take cells of similar forward scatter, similar side scatter, meaning that cells have similar sizes and similar uh, granularity. So yeah, you can never get rid of these cell dependent factors, but at least you can minimize this. And then you, if you investigate the noise, or the, the uh, standard deviation as a function of, let's say, as you restrict this gate, uh, it will drop, but after a while it reaches a plateau. So that plateau is, is uh, more or less what uh, people assume it's the, is the noise. What is your readout? Is it, is it just growth? Uh, the readout here is GFP, so how bright the cells are. So you can imagine that... But, you but what is that correlated with? Which is the, that depends on the gene. Yeah. Yeah. What is the phenotype that you are into your reader? Is it growth or is it? Uh, well, later on, I'm, I'm going to be looking at growth. And, uh, but are, you, are you synchronizing the cells? Uh, no. In cells cycle? Are, no. No. So that's another you thing. Of noise, right? Very good. So cell cycle could have another component. However, uh, yeast cells, the way they grow is by budding. So they start small, and then as they uh, enter the uh, um, S phase, they kind of tend to grow, then they form a bud. And I can tell you that this guy looks very different from this guy in the flow cytometer. So if you do gating, and uh, typically we do gating at the highest density of cells, then we can probably <laughs> separate these guys. Yeah, so there are various ways to do this, but um, um, yeast definitely do this. Um, and then you can separate them even by using gating. It's never perfect, but uh, it's pretty good. But it's a good point, so uh, stage has an effect on cell-to-cell -cell differences. Yeah? There's this thing in uh, morphometrics called the Yablakov effect. Yablakov? Yablakov, yeah. Yeah, let me write that down. It's kind of measure bones in this life, and, uh, but it applies to everything, really. Yes, and... Um, different components of the variance is, mm -hmm. is the issue. But one component is just pure measurement variance unassociated <coughs> with what you're after. Correct. And so what will happen is the mean goes down, that pure measurement variance sort of takes over, mm -hmm. and you get this inverse relationship between the C right. and the B that, that isn't related to biology at all. It's just a statistical artifact of this measurement curve variance always being there and never going away, but it becomes the predominant source when the mean is low. Right. Um, it's, um, it's a valid argument. However, um, if you do always use a flow cytometer, that's probably correct. Now, nowadays, um, people started doing something different, and that's counting single molecules. So, for example, you can take a cell and use a technique called RNA fish where you uh, basically uh, can label individual RNA molecules and they appear as uh, these spots on the microscopy image. So when you start counting, then I think your instrument uh, level noise disappears because basically you're digital. You're counting how many RNA molecules you have in two cells. And I had in some other slides a very dramatic picture. It was basically a cell dividing. So it looked like this. Um, it was just about to divide. And uh, 
you could see a big burst of RNA in one cell and, and almost nothing in the other. So when you get down to that level where you can see that daughter cells uh, or, or uh, mother and daughter cell, uh, obviously identical genetically and in the same environment, they have very different molecular uh, levels, at least of RNA, then you, you think that this is real. So um, cells can be very different despite being genetically and, and uh, um, uh, environmentally identical. Now, of course, there should be proper studies done where you could uh, do flow cytometry in parallel with this kind of measurement and try to see how they go hand in hand. That hasn't been done as far as I know. But um, I think the phenomenon is there. And um, basically, what, what uh, we do is change the, the network. Don't change anything else. So the instrument stays the same. The cell type stays the same. Everything stays the same. Now, if you change only the network and you see a change in the distribution, then it's pretty much safe to assume it's due to the network. You could have observed in natural, not, not in engineered networks, but in natural environment, by looking at, at noise in the expression of proteins, actually what you call a CV is, is often constant. That the standard deviation, not as, as you would expect in a Poissonian process, mm -hmm. grows as mu and not as the square root of mu. Yeah, so um, which cell type was that? There have been reports in E. coli, in yeast, in various mm -hmm. different uh, environments for different types of genes. Presumably, the, the argument is that in this case, the noise is due to noise in the production line of some sorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not, not, uh, there are multiple models, and uh, measurements have been made. Basically, the uh, standard model that people use very typically is you have DNA. Uh, let's just illustrate it like this. Um, there are two states of DNA. Let's call this on, and let's call this off. And cells move between these two states. Now, when the DNA is on, that's when you get uh, transcripts. That's when you get uh, uh, RNA synthesis. Uh, then, from RNA, you can get protein. So, uh, this is protein, and this is mRNA. So, uh, based on uh, these rates, so basically, if you only have the on state and you have just measure, you're just measuring RNA, okay? Then you have a constant rate of production. Let's call this uh, K, and then you have a rate of degradation here. Uh, let's call this gamma. So if you only look at this, that's a Poisson process. It's a constant rate of birth, uh, constant rate of death uh, per molecule. Um, and, and then you get a Poisson dependence of the uh, variance uh, on the mean. So basically, you have uh, the mean is proportional, it's some factor times the variance, right? Uh, that's the uh, Poisson relationship. However, if there is something to modulate this K, such as DNA level flipping from on and on states, uh, between on and off states, then you can get bursting, deviation from the Poisson process. So yeah, then you can get deviation from this law. And uh, it also depends on the particular gene. So claims have been made, but I don't think they have been made generally enough. 
I think they were made for a handful of genes uh, in bacteria, in yeast, but I think there's much more left to explore uh, of, about what happens genome-wide. So, um, yeah, uh, and of course you can just uh, do various types of modulation. You can imagine that you have the protein and uh, have your uh, L and um, and mu, I think these are letters, but uh, you can imagine that just this process is going on, then this process will modulate this process. And once again, you can get a modulated Poisson process, which will uh, deviate from the Poisson law. So basically, the point is that uh, there are these networks that we know insufficient about. Uh, there are gene regulatory networks. What I'm showing here is basically the yeast gene regulatory network uh, as of 2006. So you have transcription factors regulating a bunch of genes. Most of the genome is, is not a transcription factor, but they can still feed back uh, through other uh, means, uh, translation and so on. So how does this affect noise in gene expression and how does that affect fitness? Uh, how do we uh, measure that for single cells and for the population? Is pretty much where I'm going. So first of all, let's see how networks uh, modulate noise. Okay, so I will be talking here about first about these two networks. And the only difference between them is, is a feedback. So they both consist of a repressor called PETAR, which comes from uh, the bacterial world. Uh, it's part of the tetracycline resistance system in bacteria. But it, interestingly enough, it's a very good tool for eukaryotic biology. You can put it in plants, you can put it in insects, you can put it in um, yeast, and it very efficiently represses gene expression if you put um, things together correctly. So you can put this in and repress a gene's expression and then tune it up and down by uh, modulating the repressory activity. And you can do the same thing with a feedback. And that's what this first part will be about. Um, so the first circuit is this uh, something called NR. It's a negative regulatory cascade. And as I said, it consists of this repressor, which is synthesized and degraded. This is a protein, let's assume. And that represses GFP expression. So um, just to get a, a quick um, understanding of this, for now we can uh, ignore GFP and just focus on this repressor, because that's the core of the system. And um, we have a variety of models for this, from really simple to really complicated. So what I'm showing here is a simple model where you have constitutive synthesis and uh, linear degradation of this protein. This is called a rate balance plot. It shows you how synthesis depends on the tetar molecules already in the cell. And how does degradation or loss uh, depend on tetar molecules already in the cell? So since this is constitutive, these are the, the number of tetar molecules or a concentration of tetar molecules. And since this is a constitutive gene, there you have a flat line, meaning that no matter how much you already have there, the synthesis will be going on the same way. It's constant. Degradation, on the other hand, is proportional to the molecules already there. So each molecule has a chance to degrade. So the more you have, the higher chance you have to uh, for molecules to get lost. So these two curves, 
they intersect. And that intersection point is an equilibrium where you, your synthesis and degradation are in balance. So this means that when, when you sit here, then uh, apparently the number of tetra molecules is constant in the cell. So you synthesize as much as you, you lose. Now you can imagine you deviate. So there are stochastic fluctuations, move the cell away from this 400 point. If you move towards 600, what you see is that the rates of gain and loss will no longer be in balance. And what you see is that the loss is dominant. That means that the, the cell will lose that R. Uh, degradation tends to be higher than synthesis, which will move you back this way. So degradation dominates. That means you go down from 600, you go back this way. If you deviate towards 200, the reverse happens. Synthesis dominates. And then uh, you will be synthesizing more than you are degrading, so you will be again moving back this way. So no matter which way you deviate, you tend to move back here. Uh, this is a stable steady state. Uh, and it just tells you that no matter where you start, the system will go there. And you can uh, just imagine this as a, a ball at the bottom of a well. Uh, this is, there are various ways to build these uh, basically based on equations and I can uh, uh, try to show examples but essentially this is like the uh, only valley in this landscape where the cells like to be. Interestingly enough this gene circuit uh, we built it in yeast but it exists in mammalian cells it's actually sold commercially this is what we built this is what you can buy from Invitrogen uh, and it, it's basically the same circuit. You have the TET repressor. When it sits on these sites, you can repress the gene of interest. Um, and then you add uh, an inducer, which uh, we use ATC here. Uh, it basically binds to TETAR and makes it in, uh, inactive. Uh, you can use doxycycline, tetracycline, anhydrotetracycline, uh, all to the same effect. When they appear, they bind to tetar, they take tetar off the DNA, and the gene can be uh, transcribed. So let's see what happens if we add more of this inducer. So as I said, it, it basically binds to tetar and takes it away. Uh, it uh, amounts to increased degradation of tetar. And if you add more ATC, you basically will be increasing the slope of degradation. So um, at each tetar count, you will have higher and higher rates of degradation. So that means that you will have lower tetar at equilibrium. So you add more ATC, lower tetar. Now you imagine you regulate GFP by repression. So if you have lower tetar, you will have higher GFP, right? It's a reverse relationship. So OK, these are uh, just some theoretical considerations. This is how we gate. Uh, I don't think, I, I just put this square here, but this is what the forward scatter, side scatter uh, plot looks like uh, on our flow cytometer. Uh, I also illustrated this here. So we put a gate uh, kind of where the cell density is highest. And when you do that, you can get these histograms. So you add you more, more and more inducer. And now we are measuring GFP. So that little uh, argument here was about TETR, but we are measuring this redox GFP. Uh, and what you see is that initially you have low fluorescence, low brightness, 
for all cells. And as you add more and more inducers, uh, this shoulder develops, and then you have a bimodal distribution, and finally the cells turn um, into a bright population. And then you can measure the mean, the macroscopic. Uh, look at just at the normal blue points, um, the dark blue points and bright blue points refer to the peaks. Uh, the, there are two peaks here. But if you look at the blue line, you see that this circuit turns on and then it saturates. Um, so if you wanted to control this target gene, as I said, Invitrogen is selling this. Now, there is a particular problem with it. So first of all, uh, it's like trying to tune the volume on the radio and initially uh, the cells don't respond. So you turn the knob up, there is no response coming out. Then all of a sudden, the, 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 there's just blasting so sound coming out. So the same way the cells all of a sudden switch to high expression. So this is not ideal. There's a very short uh, range where uh, uh, the response happens. There is another problem with it, and that's here. So let's say in, you want to work in this regime, where you can actually seem to have control. And this regime, you have these distributions, which show that over, or even though the mean uh, expression uh, tends to go between the extremes, individual cells don't. They stay either quite low or quite high. They're very d diverse, very different from each other. So not only can't you uh, go nicely between uh, uh, to, to follow the uh, controlling signal, which is this ATC, you also have a lot of diversity. Individual cells don't agree. They don't obey your control. Could you uh, explain a little bit the upper right? Uh, upper right. Yeah, this one? are either on or off, and then there's a bell shape because of just measurement error, or am I missing something? No, this is actually, uh, we, we think this is noise. So this is, um, by adding more and more inducer, you start seeing these uh, distributions which are bimodal. So you didn't change the instrument, you didn't change the cells. What you changed was this inducer. So what you were doing, were adding more and more of this, which increases tetar degradation. So imagine that tetar is like uh, the sea level. You have this inducer, the sea level drops. And as the sea level drops, it allows expression of the GFP. So the reverse happens with GFP. As tetar drops, GFP comes up. Now how it comes up is interesting because the sea level keeps dropping, GFP still stays low. It goes down, 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 and all of a sudden GFP jumps up. Okay? Because this is because you have cooperativity. I guess yeah, there is a cooperativity issue. Primer or something like that? It's a dimer. It's dimer. a dimer. And it has also uh, two binding sites on the DNA. So there is cooperativity, great point. There is another thing uh, which uh, we think is sequestration. Uh, basically, people have shown that even without cooperativity, you can have ultra-sensitive responses when you have uh, one molecule strongly binding to another. So imagine that here is your tetar, you add ATC, and then they bind very strongly. Uh, but uh, tetar dominates. It also binds DNA very strongly. So as long as you have an excess of tetar, even though you have a little amount, it will repress DNA. So you deplete, deplete gradually as you add more ATC. And when you about reach balance, that's when the uh, situation just flips. So basically, you use up all your tetar. You will have, from very strong repression, you will get to no repression in a very short domain, uh, small domain. 
And that's when uh, the, the thing flips. And it does so in single cells. Now, uh, we think that uh, just small variations in original tetrahedral levels, upper, lower, uh, as they get depleted, lead to large differences when they get uh, used up by ATC, by that inducer. So those differences which were small, maybe initially, when you get down here, they will amount to a lot of differences because you will just uh, be at the threshold where you can relieve or uh, keep repression. So, so that's where this diversity develops. It's from differences in tetrahedral levels from cell to cell. So I don't know if that answers the question, more or less. We have models which kind of support uh, this argument. It's also, also strange because this is a, a monostable system. It has one valley, and yet it have, has two peaks. So, but this valley refers to TETR. That is GFP downstream. So it was an excellent question because the TETR actually is not uh, bimodal. The GFP is bimodal. You're still shaking it, right? So yeah, uh, you're staking. You shake it back faster. Does, does the peak become more sharp? Or is it just? Uh, you mean, uh, are you talking about physically shaking or just uh, lit, uh, you know, in a? So you, you said that the peak, the two peaks, bimodal distribution comes about because the tetrahedral is not distributed evenly. Mm -hmm. right, so that can be tested. Yes, that, that's been tested. So we have uh, tetrahedral fused to GFP, and the tetrahedral peak is is uh, one peak. It, it's unimodal. So nevertheless, the downstream peak is bimodal. So but then it must be cooperativity, not fluctuations in tetrahedral. Uh, well, it's cooperativity plus fluctuations, because cooperativity alone will not give you the two peaks. Imagine that you have no fluctuations; you have a delta peak. Even though you have a high cooperativity, that will stay a delta peak. Uh, if you pass the delta peak through a function, it will stay a delta peak. However, if you pass a distribution through a, a, a very nonlinear function, then it can develop uh, two peaks. So that's the mechanism. Uh, so both are necessary. And yeah. OK, so this is just a visual uh, illustration of what the cells look like. It's uh, not the most updated uh, picture. We have a more updated movie, which was recorded in a nearby lab in a microfluidic chamber of these cells. Um, so you can see they are in the same environment. So initially, they are really in the same environment, um, having the same genome. And you can just appreciate this diversity uh, cells turn on and off. Uh, these guys just turned off. Another one turned on. There is this wide range of um, expression levels um, which cells have. And it's not constant in time. So it fluctuates. So it's not constant across the population. It's not constant in time either. And this is at intermediate level of expression. So this is around here. Uh, this is around where the peak is. So when you have here or here, cells here or here, of course, they are either all mostly bright or mostly dark. Now, let's add feedback to this. So the only difference here is this feedback. Let's ignore GFP for a moment. Um, and now, now I'm going to be getting in trouble. But um, basically, previously you saw that this curve was flat. This is the synthesis curve. And it was flat because the gene was constitutive. The gene didn't care of how much protein is already there. 
Now the gene really cares how much protein is there because the more protein is there, the less it will produce. And that's what this curve shows. The more tatar you have there, the less synthesis you will have. The degradation stays the same, so once again they intersect once, and based on the same argument as before, you see that this is a stable steady state. So you have a ball at the bottom of a valley. Um, you can add more ATC and, and move. Uh, tatar expression will be lower. Um, as a consequence, GFP expression will be higher. One property of this valley is that um, if you, you can say it's pretty much the same as before, but if you overlay the two, you see that the previous one is much more shallow compared to this. So as an expectation from here, you could say that if there are fluctuations moving this cell around, they will, be, they will have an easy time to move it around without feedback, but maybe with feedback, they, the cell will experience these slopes. So it will have a stronger restoring force here. Okay, so this is a cross comparison of no feedback and feedback. Uh, you've seen these two curves. Now add feedback on top of them and notice the differences. So first of all, this sigmoidal shape turned into a linear shape. The cells start responding from very early on, from very low inducer, and they march up linearly with inducer towards their maximum. Um, this is no longer a broken knob because you get response as soon as you start tuning your volume, the cells start responding. That's nice. There is another nice feature here. Uh, you saw this big noise peak. This is 150%. We talked about CVs. Uh, what is the level of noise? Without feedback, this system gives you about 150% uh, uh, variation in terms of the mean. When you add feedback, that drops down to um, 20, 30 percent, um, and it's true uh, at all inducer levels. So you get two major benefits from negative feedback in this system. One is linearity, and the other one is uniformity of expression. And uniformity is seen here, so without feedback you see these broad distributions, uh, cells being very different. With feedback, notice how these peaks are narrow and nicely marching upwards with uh, the inducer. So immediately you get better control. How do you explain linearity? Because if, it is, if, if the sigmoidal curve was due to, uh, to cooperative effects... Thank you, I was expecting that question. And the answer is, I don't really know why the noise drops so much in this system. I, I quite understand. The noise, here you're talking about the response. The fluorescence, why should the fluorescence increase linearly? If it is cooperative effect, okay. or even what right. is, uh, so for that, you only need equations. Dimension. Okay, okay, I will need equations for that. So um, linearity uh, comes out as a solution of a set of differential equations. And I have to write them down so that I can kind of explain. So here is, let's call this NR. This is the no feedback system, this is NF. Yeah, switch on the light if you, if you I want. will. So for NR, we have three variables. X is the repressor, Y is the inducer, and Z is the readout. So um, you can describe this system by, first of all, X is um, synthesized constitutively. This is synthesis. Um, it is bound by the inducer, so let's call this binding rate BXY. 
so these two are bound. And there is also degradation, let's call that um, delta x. Um, why? It comes from the outside. So the outside, this is internal inducer. It comes from the exterior. Uh, it comes in at, at, the, at a rate which is dependent on extracellular inducer. It binds to uh, the tetar molecule and it degrades as well, plus it leaks out of the cell. So this could be different. And then finally, the Z is, uh, it's a, a function of X. So this is where you repress your target gene. Uh, let's call this. Um, y is not simply a constant because the Y is the inducer, the, the, the tetracycline that you are putting from outside, that's constant. It's not constant. It's actually very different from the concentration outside. And the reason it's different is because of these two terms. So basically, you can imagine that this inducer flows into the cells. The uh, influx rate has been measured. It's not fast. So to, if you don't have anything else, to equilibrate, I think the half time is about one hour. It flows in slowly. In the meanwhile, cells grow. right? They dilute this thing. Uh, tetar binds the inducer. So as a consequence, it tries to flow in and equilibrate, but in the meanwhile, it gets diluted and it gets taken away by uh, the repressor. So consequently, the intracellular concentration will be always lower, except uh, when you, well, it will always be lower, but it will be much lower as long as you have tetar expression. So uh, when you use that tetar, basically then you can get an offset of the intracellular and extracellular inducer, but it will always be lower. Uh, let's call this uh, gamma Z. Okay, so uh, for the NF system, you have pretty much the same equations, but um, I will just write it here, right, straight across. Uh, this X will be uh, AFX here, because it's self-repression, minus bxy minus delta x, uh, c minus bxy minus phi, and then this will be the same, afx minus gamma z. Okay, uh, you can solve this set of differential equations. Why do you put fx in the, in, in the equation for x dot? I mean, that's not the same fx that you have for z. Why not? It's not the same, I mean. It is, and that's actually a secret of the system. It's the same promoter. Then we put the system together such that the same promoter drives uh, GFP and TETAR, and that's actually essential for linearity. So your question is excellent. The, these two have to be the same. And now there is a hand-waving argument uh, for linearity that I can just uh, show here. Um, very quickly, imagine that this is at equilibrium, so basically your z will be equal to uh, a over gamma fx, all right? This is your z. So you need to determine um, fx to get z. Here, if you assume that, um, for a moment, you assume that these degradation rates are slow, uh, let's say you neglect them, then from here you get that uh, c, let's say it's approximately equal to bxy, then you can plug c in here, and you get that afx 
uh, minus c is zero. So you get fx is equal to c over a. All right, now you plug it in here and then you get that z is equal to a over gamma. Instead of fx, you can put c over a and see what happens. Z is proportional to C, which is extracellular concentration. I did some hand waving here, and I don't think, uh, strictly speaking, you can ignore these. Uh, this is just an approximate solution. You can solve the differential equations and explore the parameter ranges when this is valid, but uh, this is the argument for linearity. And as soon as you don't have the same F here, you can see where the, then the problem comes, because this would be a GX, and then you would have to uh, convert from G to F, and it will no longer be linear. But that's a, a simple argument why you get linearity. So yeah, uh, now we know all the details of this system. And we do think that these two properties, linearization and noise reduction, together amount to better precision. So it's a nice thing to uh, use negative feedback uh, to ex uh, control gene expression levels like that. Okay, this is just a movie of what this looks like. Um, compared to the previous uh, movie, you can uh, appreciate how uniform the cells are in the beginning. Uh, towards the end, some cells get sick, uh, they get old, they kind of enter uh, um, stationary phase probably in the middle. But uh, um, I think initially you can appreciate how uniform their expression is. And uh, this is, in a shaking tube, uh, they are much better off. So they don't have uh, competition for resources and so on. But what are the big bubbles? Uh, these are uh, sick or old cells. They're blebbing or something? Or um, well, as I said, as yeast cells divide, they tend to grow. Oh, okay. After about 30 divisions, they become huge uh, round things which no longer divide. Uh, that's called replicative aging. Uh, besides that, they, if they have toxicity, they have this vacuole where they kind of sequester things. Um, you can see the vacuole. Actually, some cells are dying. You, that's a vacuole. Uh, it's not a nucleus. Um, and they probably don't like something in there. Uh, they're also kind of constrained. Um, so this is not ideal to the cells. And I think, and this has taken over several days. Okay. So it's probably just signs of aging and, and uh, unhappiness of the cells. So we saw that uh, we can change noise. We can add the inducer and change the mean, turn the gene on differently. You can either turn it on with a lot of noise or with low noise. And then you can do this plot where you have the mean here and you have the noise, CV plotted here, and you see this drastic difference. What does this mean? It means that you can basically select a mean level, go up here, and have two populations with identical means but different noises. So this is useful if you wanted to um, explore the effect of the noise independently of the mean. Why? Because you can have two populations, let's say exposed to uh, stress. If they have the different means and different noises, then any differences you see could be attributed to either. But if you have the same mean, you can't eliminate that factor. And this is what illustrates this situation where you have the two populations lined up so that they have the same mean, 
but different variability. Yes? So for me, it looks not that there's much more noise, but just that there's this stochastic bifurcation from one stable to the other stable. In the intermediate range, you, have the, you switch between the two stable states, basically. Right. So the noise level is lower. It's just the dynamics of the full system, which gives you uh, seemingly higher. Well, it depends how you define noise. If you look at the whole population and you take a picture, uh, then your noise levels are high because cells are very different from each other. If you look at within individual states, um, and if cells stay there for just measure them while they are in this particular state, then yeah, noise is low. But that's kind of a restrictive picture. Uh, when stress comes, it's actually uh, it, it matters how many cells are in one state or the other. It doesn't matter that they are very predictable in either state. It matters that they can be in both states. Um, and, and that's what this is trying to illustrate. Uh, for example, you can imagine you add a lot of drug. If this protein protects from drug, then you add the drug, you wipe both populations out. Now you can add slightly lower level of drug, still high. Well, you notice there is this fraction of cells. If this is a strong killing agent, these cells will survive. None of the red cells will survive. So as a uh, consequence, this stochastic uh, diversity can give you uh, survival. On the other hand, if you have a low level of drug, it can reverse. So basically now all the red cells survive, but some of these variable guys get suppressed. So you get the opposite effect. So noise is good uh, in this hypothetical setup when you have high levels of stress, but not so good if you have low levels of stress. If you have low levels of stress, it's better to just tune yourself up above stress level and be uniform. Okay, um, there are multiple arguments along those lines, but this was actually measured in an experimental system. This is an older paper uh, dating back to the time when I was in Jim Collins' lab. Uh, and we set up actually two cell populations which had high or low noise. We treated them with this zeosin, and instead of the GFP, we were expressing a resistance protein to this zeosin. And notice how the noisy population is doing better at high, level of high levels of stress, but it is doing more poorly at low levels of stress, just like that uh, illustration was predicting it. Right, and here is where I need to know uh, my time constraints. Um, half an hour is, you know, our nominal stopping time, but you can go longer. Uh, half an hour from the start, or <laughs> from, now. from now? Wow, that's very much luxury. Okay, so that's great. Uh, I'm still going to skip some stuff here. So we moved this linearizer system into mammalian cells, and it, uh, it was a lot of work, but it turns out to work pretty nicely. And then you can start basically tuning mammalian genes. Uh, and uh, the hope is to start controlling uh, these spheroids, uh, basically tuning cell-to-cell -cell attachment factors and doing nice stuff like that, where you can be sure that uh, all cells are as close as possible in their expression of certain factors, uh, which mediate cell-to-cell -cell attachment or cell-to-matrix attachment. So it gives you some nice um, tools. So to summarize this part one, I think I was trying to tell you that cells of the same genome in the same environment can still be very different. 
which is noise. And there are multiple questions of how to measure it properly, uh, how to quantify it, uh, what are the sources of noise, absolutely uh, open questions. Uh, this is unavoidable, just because you have small volumes and molecules moving randomly inside and colliding randomly. Um, and we also saw that regulatory networks, in particular negative feedback here, modulated noise. So the only difference between the two networks we had was negative feedback. And it caused a lot of drop in this variation. All right, so uh, on to part two. Uh, it's going to be about the third gene circuit. And now we are going to start looking at fitness um, at multiple levels. So this third circuit um, consists of an activator. It's different from the other uh, systems, which had at, at their core, they had a repressor. Now you have an activator. And this activator, uh, when it's bound by the inducer, it causes expression. So the whole logic is reversed, but you may like this one better because it's direct, um, meaning that when you add the inducer, it makes the activator functional, which turns GFP on. So all the links are positive in this system. Once again, we see these plots. You remember the flat line, the line which was going down. Now we have an activator. And I'm actually following this bound state of this uh, protein. Previously, I was following the unbound state. Then you have this upsloping curve. And we again have cooperativity. We have a dimer. We have two, two DNA binding sites. So you can Im imagine that these curves intersect three times. When that happens, you have not only one equilibrium. You have one, two, three equilibria. And then you can start playing your game of deviating. You deviate from here, you have a restoring force because degradation dominates. Here you deviate to the right, you have no restoring force. You actually have uh, synthesis dominance, so you depart even more until you reach this point. So when you start here, just a little fluctuation will bring you either here or here. So this is equivalent to having um, this landscape where you have two valleys separated by a peak. And this is a typical bistable system. So cells can be fine here or here. Uh, even though they have the same genomes and they're in the same environment, if you put them here, they can stay there. If you put them here, they stay there. Now, noise, stochastic fluctuations can actually move them across and move them back and so on. So um, this is kind of the prediction of what happens in this system. Um, of course, I was just looking at the RTTA, the core of the system, is this regulator. Um, about the readout, there is something particular. Now we fused our fluorescent reporter to the drug resistance gene. So whenever you see fluorescent cells, they will be resisting this zeosin antibiotic. Um, so resistance becomes visual. You lower the inducer amount. Uh, you lower the synthesis rate. So basically, this curve moves down. And what you will get is just one intersection point. You can uh, go get away from bistability. Then your landscape changes into something like this, where you have only one valley instead of the uh, two valleys. All right, so let's see the measurements. Once again, we add more and more inducers. Just back up for a second. You, you, are you just this, uh, the, the blue line? See? You know that they, they have this curve linear behavior. Uh, uh, linear, sorry? 
Well, you've drawn the Wrigley blue line as uh, a sigmoid. Uh huh. Yeah, that's an assumption. So it's uh, a good point. We have not measured this. However, uh, many people have measured this, and it's a pretty typical assumption to um, assume these sigmoidal responses. You can actually do some calculations and show that uh, the sigmoidal response is a reasonable approximation when you have uh, regulator binding to a promoter, and the level of the target gene uh, will depend based on a sigmoid on the upstream regulator concentration. So no, this was not measured. It was just assumed based on multiple. Uh, you will not. So yeah. Um, well, if you, there are certain things you need. Uh, actually, it's a minimal thing you need is uh, this uh, cooperativity here. Uh, if you have no cooperativity, you will not get the three steady states. True. So um, I think you need this. And I think in this system, you, you probably have it just because you have a dimer and you have two DNA binding sites. Um, so you have a high chance to have it. There is another thing that comes to your uh, to the advantage or to the in favor of bistability um, that I'm I'm going to mention a little bit later. But basically, you can get bistability even in systems which are biochemically monostable, and that comes from growth-mediated feedback. It's another uh, quirk that's kind of important. So I would imagine that in general. One of these two minima is much lower than the other one, so you rarely see. So, so, so my question is, does it take a lot of fine tuning to get mm -hmm. them somehow at the same level so that oh, you yeah. see? I think I think that takes some tuning. Correct. It takes some tuning, and that's shown here. So as you see, you can add more and more inducer, and initially this peak is high, this peak is low. Then the peak heights change, and you are probably asking about this distribution yeah. at 1080C where their heights are equal. Yeah, so it requires some tuning, but you can experimentally do it. Um, even without any model, if you just do this, you can find the concentration which gives you equal peaks. And then it requires the a well-defined concentration. So mm -hmm. Yes. ETC. Yes, if you change the concentrations, the peaks will not be equal. Yeah, it's not robust. Uh, Nevertheless, the bimodality is very robust. So you have two peaks in a very robust manner. This is the mean, this is the noise. Now, notice the noise here is uh, close to 250%. This is what I was mentioning. In this system, when you measure the noise uh, right around here, it's huge. It's about 250% in terms of the mean. Now, a few concepts before we move on. Um, as I said, now we have this GFP fused to ZOR, uh, drug resistance protein. So cells are potentially noisy. We saw that before in the previous movie that they can move between high and low fluorescence. Uh, you can imagine if you add drug that cells below a certain concentration will be doing poorly, above a certain concentration will be doing better. So you can just imagine there is this microscopic fitness landscape. And that's one more question. Yes, please. So are, is the longevity of the sort of turnover rate of relevant molecules in the cell such that cells are making, individual cells are making transitions? 
Uh -huh. Oh, oh, yeah, excellent question. I think I'll, I'll wait for with the answer. The answer will come in just a few slides. But for now, let's just imagine that individual cells, okay, uh, they fluctuate in their in their fluorescence. Since the fusion was done, this also amounts to fluctuation in fitness. So, so far we talked about uh, fluctuations in brightness. Now this becomes very relevant because it's a fluctuation in fitness. And the gene circuit that we put in forces cells to move back and forth and have higher fitness, lower fitness. They can't avoid it, they must do this walk. Uh, and as they do it, they uh, spend certain time here and certain time here, and we'll get to the amount of time in a very short time. But uh, nevertheless, we talk about cellular fitness, individual cells, and the rate of their division depending on their fluorescence as they move up and low, uh, below in fluorescence. We can talk about this non-genetic memory. So relative to a threshold, we can define on average time that the cell spends down here versus up here. So, um, like uh, for example, here you see it's up. Now it's uh, down. It's up, and it's just a certain time uh, that you can actually uh, estimate. And it becomes important because the time it spends here, if it's uh, shorter than replication, then before the cell divides, it can average um, the fitness out. <coughs> However, if it's slower than replication, then it can spend a lot of time here and reproduce, reproduce, reproduce in this high fitness state. So um, that's a very important point. We can go in with some expectations. Let's see what happens. We add zeosine. What do you expect? You have these distributions, okay? You can tune um, the gene expression. We can call this defense, basically. You turn on your defense system. And the way you turn it on, it's not uniformly. It's a part of your population uh, is under defense. Um, and the, the amount of your population under defense varies depending on your inducer. And then you can add or remove attack. Uh, you can imagine you have uh, rockets dropping on you. Uh, and then you can build uh, a def uh, defense system, bunkers, and so on in certain areas. Uh, and this is a complete defense everywhere you have uh, defense on. And the question is, where do you expect uh, optimal fitness? And most of you would probably vote for this. Of course, if you have uniformly turned on defense, it's good. Um, it's good for... Uh, uh, defending the whole cell population, so this is probably optimal. Also, you would expect if there is switching, and there is the question about switching, that the peak heights kind of should reflect how cells move. So if you have a high peak here, you should expect cells to move mostly downward rather than upward. And when you have equal peaks, you would expect kind of equal switching rates. And uh, the reverse here. Okay, so let's see if those so whole... Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, the the net switching rates. Yes. Correct. So this is per cell. I mean, so uh, if you talk about flux, meaning the number of cells, those would be equal. Correct. But per cell, you would expect um, these uh, arrows. I missed what connects fluorescence to the cell replication rate. Oh, okay. So fluorescence basically implies drug resistance here, 
because we fuse this GFP, the fluorescent reporter, to a drug resistance gene. So whenever you have fluorescence, you have better fitness when drug is present. So that's when um, uh, fluorescence turns into a fitness um, difference as cells move uh, across this landscape. So let's say this is uh, below this cells are harmed, before above these cells are uh, fine in drug. So of course as they fluctuate then uh, fluorescence directly connects to fitness. How it connects is a different question and we make some assumptions on that. So here are the assumptions actually. Let's study the two knobs we have. We, have, we can add attack, attack, remove attack. We can add defense, remove defense. And let's just uh, start playing with those. So first of all, let's just attack defenseless cells. Um, there is this uh, population of cells and you can imagine that as you add more drug, um, the more and more fluorescence or uh, protection you need to save the cells. So you see this uh, upslope here. This is a heuristic function we um, came up with based on basic biochemical considerations, uh, saying that uh, it's actually a, a, a Hill function. The more drug you have, the more fluorescence you will need to protect. On the other hand, um, yeah, so, so this is the, whole, uh, the only uh, thing in this, in this landscape. And this is what single cells do. They basically move back and forth on this landscape if they have a distribution. Uh, they will explore this low fitness and high fitness states. Why, why the single cell, at least was a question that was raised before, why, why would they move? <coughs> why would they move? Yeah, it, it's, there is enough noise to actually drive them from mm -hmm. one state to the other? Yes. Can you control that noise? Or? Yes. So but basically, even in the previous movies, you saw there was no drug there, but cells turned bright, they turned... Uh, yes, but this is sub subsequent to division, then you can understand. Not necessarily. Uh, they they the same scale, the uh, same division, and then the fluctuations. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we will get to that. It's a very important question. Previously, actually, you saw that uh, it took about a couple, three, four, five cell divisions for switches to happen. Here, it will be different. And actually, it's important. So this is all heuristic. Um, but single cells doing this generate a population and we can measure population fitness. So, so far we haven't measured this. We haven't measured the division rate when cells go back and forth on this landscape. But we did measure populations in various levels of drug. So this is a measurement over a week. We kept cells in exponential growth to make the growth uh, uh, equation simple, exponential growth. And as you add more and more drug, you get a lower and lower slope. Now, doing linear fits to the slope, which is log of cell count, is a, our fitness measure. This is how we uh, estimate population fitness. And each of these dots correspond to a line here. And as you see, as you add more and more drug, you get a lower population fitness. The nice thing is that now, this population fitness can be expressed as the average of the individual cell fitness weighted by this distribution. So you basically weight um, the fitness of individual cells uh, according to how many uh, cells can be at various fluorescence levels, and that average gives you the population fitness. Now you can fit your theoretical curve to the experimental data. And when you do that, you get parameters. 
So we did that, and this is how we parameterize me, this model. If the fluctuation is much faster, then in single cell, cell generation, that can go like this. Yeah. Then uh, even if they say mostly here, once it can, it can be killed. So yeah. I, I think it's a, if it is a longer than these things, then I think you should, be cal you should calculate the geometric mean thickness instead of the absolute coverage. I'm, I'm not sure why. <laughs> Yeah, but if you stay there for several generations, mm -hmm. then go like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that the thickness is a should be multiplied. I'm not sure why yet, but uh, I would like to discuss that. Uh, so if you think about the single lineage along mm -hmm. one cell generation experience high thickness, and the next low and high and low, mm -hmm. it should be multiplied. You are thinking about uh, certain fractional cells that you know, express high and other fractions small low. Yes, if you uh, follow the whole population over time. What I'm looking at is at this moment, what is the change in population count per unit time? So I'm not looking over time. Over time, you would have to do a geometric average. If I look at this time point and the next time point, so let's say very short time, how many more cells did I get? So it's basically this relationship where you have uh, n dot equal to uh, equal to gn, all right? Then I'm just calculating this g at this moment, and the way I approximate g is g is equal to delta n over n times delta t. So yeah, if if I follow this over time, you are right. But if I look at right at this moment, the population expansion that will be an arithmetic mean. So. Um, it's a different uh, uh, type of measurement. Over cells. Yes, over cells. Yes, over cells and their fit. Yes, this is what's getting us. Yes. So I actually read uh, papers about lineage and uh, uh, geometric mean, and uh, for, for that I think, nevertheless, I think this growth rate, if you calculate it, it will stay constant. So um, you calculate it at this moment, at the next moment. Uh, as long as the cells are in equilibrium, this will uh, always be the relationship right, measured at right at this moment. Okay, so um, I think it would be interesting to see how that bridges to the geometric mean uh, approach. You, you, think, you think about the synchronization elements, I think, uh, of course, you are um, unsummarizing, correct? Uh, but uh, if you think about the case of the Every generation, they will switch high and low. And if it's low, all cells are killed. So in that case, everyone will be killed. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you are thinking about certain fraction we will experience yes. high. And exactly. Times. Yeah. So I think uh, that would be. There is no synchrony. So cells, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All these, uh, yeah, yeah, all these details, absolutely. Yeah, there is no synchrony. Good point. Um, all right, so let me move on just quickly. Uh, talk about the defense. You turn on the defense without attack. Uh, it turns out that that's not free either. So turning on the defense is costly. And there were papers about this. In this particular system, we have some cost to turning on the activator and binding it to the inducer. Uh, activators at high level tend to be uh, toxic to cells. And just turning on your defense system gives you a downslope in terms of fluorescence. And once again, cells individually move across this landscape. And we do this measurement. And right here at this moment, 
we can measure uh, population fitness, which goes down with ATC. So turning on the defense system, setting up your bunkers and uh, uh, missile defense is not, uh, doesn't come free. It, it comes at a cost. All right, so now the most interesting question is what if you turn both on? You have attack and you have defense. That's when you have these two landscapes and you kind of calculate what happens if both are on. How do you do that? You basically have assumptions. Uh, one assumption could be that the two effects are independent. If they are independent, then one comes on top of each other, on top of the other, so you basically multiply them. And that would be your joint effect of both the attack and defense. You can do this calculation and predict what happens when both uh, attack and defense are on. You can also assume low memory. So this is an initial assumption. Let's assume that cells move very quickly. Uh, they kind of average uh, their fluorescence out with four cell division. With those two assumptions, you get this blue curve, which is horribly disagreeing with the experiment. So this is uh, experimental data. This is the model wrong. So what's going on? We relaxed these assumptions one by one. We relaxed this uh, so-called bliss independence. We assumed some dependence between these two, and the agreement was still bad. I'm not showing that data. So it turns out it's not the independence that causes the problem. What causes the problem is the memory. And now we actually measured memory. And the way we did it is we sorted cells into low and high expressors and followed them over time. As you see, the red sorted cells, these are low expressors, about uh, Half a day they regenerate a bimodal, uh, about one day they regenerate a, a, a bimodal population. The yellow cells, in a day they don't feel anything. In about two days they start showing some low cells. And after about five days they still are not back to the uh, original population. So this gives you a sense of the memory we are talking about. But it means, it means that your assumption that very fast switching between... Is wrong. is wrong. Correct, yes. What is the length of the one-cell generation? Yeah. yeah. Uh, one-cell generation uh, is, is about two hours. Two hours? Oh. Yes, two hours. Um, two to three hours. Uh, they are growing in galactose here. Okay, so here you can use this simple two-state model because basically you have the high and low cell count. You have switching rates, which we call them rise, rising and falling rates, and you have growth rates. So it's a simple linear system. You can do a fit after some measurements and you can extract the rising and falling rates uh, from, from this system. And when you do that, that's when you, let's say we do that at a specific concentration. So. Um, uh, going back to Michael's question, we did this at the equal peaks, which was ATC10, and then uh, we uh, fit that uh, model, and we got a rising rate of about a day, going from down to up. The falling rate uh, is huge. It's, uh, we did several measurements. It's always over 100 hours. So um, and we think it's over one week, actually. So what's going on is a lot of switching upward, while very little switching happens downward. And both of those are much slower than cell division. So yeah, cells stay a long time in either of these states before they move. Nevertheless, they can establish equilibrium. And it takes several days to do that. So what is the basis of the memory? 
All right, yeah, so that's a difficult question. I think um, we don't have mechanistic answers to that. I think it's due to positive feedback, first of all. So when you switch high, you have a lot of active activator which produces more activator and it kind of self-maintains. On top of that, you have the toxicity. So at low uh, activator levels, activator gets diluted. At high activators, growth slows down, so the activator already there gets diluted less, gets more concentrated. That's an additional feedback that maintains uh, stability there. So I think that those are pretty much the components. I don't have mechanistic answers better than that. Yeah, and the, the funny thing though here is that the peaks are approximately equal, the switching rates are not. So at equilibrium, cells move here all the time. They don't switch down. So it's the equivalent of everyone walking out of here and the room still being full. How is that possible? Well, it turns out that we have uh, different growth rates. And uh, as I said, the activator is toxic if it's turned on. So um, the way you can have this room full is if people re keep replicating here while uh, walking out. So then you will have an equilibrium. So small differences in growth can balance large differences in switching because the growth rates are, are faster. So this gives hopefully the answer to the, the questions about what are the growth rates, what are the switching rates. These are half-lives. Um, uh, so if you increase the noise level, then that valley will start to disappear? If you increase noise level of... Uh, so you're making... Oh, yeah. Yes. With low noise, you're trapped. Correct. Excellent point. We didn't do that, but completely correct. If you would increase noise level, this valley would fill up, and the switching rates would go up. So it's a, it's a very good point. We actually have a method to measure switching rates based on the height here. Uh, a very talented student, Rhys Adams, uh, this is him, uh, developed the model to do that because this was only at one inducer and Dimitri did the measurement, uh, uh, excellent postdoc. But then Rhys developed this cellular current model where he actually uh, predicted switching rates. Not, this was not measured, it was predicted based on distributions and the heights here. Um, it's extremely similar <laughs> population Correct. So if you have uh, two alleles drifting, that could really mess it up. Here we assume. No, I'm just saying that formally, I think it's fairly equivalent to models we have in population genetics. That's quite possible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, under drift, yes, uh, between two alleles. Yeah. Uh, totally fair. Um, and and with, uh, Ali is causing different fitness. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, this method basically allows you to calculate this memory all over at all ATCs. And it's actually described here. Now, just to, uh, prox uh, to uh, appreciate the memory um, here, I'm just going to show this movie and probably uh, finish up very soon. But um, notice the discrepancy between bright and dark cells. And also try to notice that when a dark cell starts, it doesn't really tend to switch down. So it generates a population of, of bright cells, which just you know, keeps expanding. Over this time frame, this was about a three or four day movie. Um, pictures taken every uh, half an hour. Uh, so um, dark cells do switch up. So if we follow here, there's a, a switch up. 
bright cells don't switch down over the time frame we measure. So this, this is really stable non-genetic memory. So this requires the activator, obviously. Yes. So, so the activator is active to get your GFP on. Right, and it also activates itself. Yeah, and there's no negative regulation, there's no... No, not here. So this is also dependent on protein, the activator having some sort of half-life. Yes, absolutely. Uh, if the half-life would decrease, that would decrease memory. So you need to kind of maintain the binding and, and constant activation. Yes. And we also have a readout. So GFP is the readout. And GFP has a long half-life. So I can't exclude the possibility that transient switching happens. But for fitness, what really matters is GFP. So if GFP stays up, that's all that I care about. Um, here and of course, voila! When we put in the memory that we measured as described, then the theory and, and uh, model agree very nicely. We have this sharp peak of fitness. So when you have attack and defense on, the lesson is you have an optimal defense level that you want. Having defense all over is not the best option you have. It's okay, but it's not the best. The best is to have a little fraction of your population under defense while, while the rest being vulnerable. And it's kind of counterintuitive, but um, I'm going to try to illustrate how that happens. Can I just ask, I still can't get something straight. Of course. You pointed out in, that you didn't see any GFP plus going back to minus in your time lapse. OK, yeah. yeah. So it wouldn't go back to minus, wouldn't it, unless you got some sort of negative feedback? Should just, I mean, you've got activator being made, positively regulated. So we think it goes back to minus, and it's not based on that movie. Yeah, no, but um, why does it go back to minus? If you good question. Yeah, I, I actually don't know the answer to that. And that's the... It's just a one-way switch, and it's dependent yeah. upon the start. But it's two-way, but it's so rare that it goes down. And the reason I know we, it goes down is because we did this Novik and Warner experiment, where we diluted, 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 one cell per tube. After about uh, five days, populations came out. Half of the populations were all high. Half of the populations were mixed. Now those high populations, if you kept resuspending them, eventually they developed the low population. So we know there is switching. But it's so low, the rate is so low, you need a lot of cells, and then eventually you have an event which will regenerate the low population. So switching back the other way if you ever got that's, like that's Yeah, it's, it's a hard question. question. I don't know. When, 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 when the yeast bleds, it could be that in the blood there is much less a sub-threshold level. One possibility, yeah. yeah. But, but you need to invoke something other than just positive regulation, is what I'm asking, which is what you are suggesting. You would have something else. I mean, there's so much noise. Just, you mean negative feedback know. around the positive, the high state? Very possible? Just, have a, I mean, just in principle, from an engineering perspective. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The feed forward loop. Yeah. That's all that's governing expression of your... Yeah, well, I mean, it depends on the stability of your states. I think positive feedback by itself can give you a lot of stability. Uh, I mean, uh, it depends on these curves you have. You have the red curves and the, the blue curves, and... Uh, uh, it's a bistable system. So you can imagine situations where you have, uh, let's say this is uh, synthesis. I think I drew that with the blue. If you have really sharp synthesis and you have, I don't know how to draw this, but um, it has to be really 
uh, sharp. I mean, this curve could also be deviating from linear. And if it deviates from linear, let's say it's like this, okay? All right, so what does this mean? It, the restoring force is typically the angle between these curves. So if this is degradation and this is synthesis, okay, so the restoring force here is the angle between these two. So if the curves look like this, then you move a little bit away, you have a very strong restoring force because synthesis is so dominant. It's the angle between these two that gives you how fast you restore. Whereas here, the angle is much less. So you deviate, you can still be away. That's basically how these curves are set up. So positive feedback alone can give you a lot of stability. Uh, but I would agree, if you add negative feedback on top of it to the high state, that will stabilize it even more. Yeah, no question uh, about that. So um, just uh, basically uh, here, to give you an intuition why this state is better, is this. Um, right after attack, what happens here, you save the whole population, but it grows kind of slowly. It, it inches up. Nobody gets affected. Here, you get rid of these guys, and these guys survive, but they are in a less toxic state. So over a long time, they will be growing faster. So it's just this drop and then overgrowth. And the curves cross over. So this is why on the long run, this is a better scenario than this if the activator is toxic. And this is the actual selective event where you have this population. So the green cells are before treatment. They have very few high expressors. You see this little mess here. You add drug and their situation switches. You select strongly for these uh, cells. Now for this to really work, you need memory. You need the cells to stay here for a long time so that they can uh, reproduce and give you this uh, expansion. Okay, so that's pretty much the intuition here. And uh, before I finish up, I didn't get to evolution, but <coughs> this model, it's, we treat it as a model system. It gives you very nice uh, regimes to explore. First of all, we think of these as kind of a persister model where there is a, this small population which saves the whole population when the drug comes. Um, and there is this uh, field of persisters, bacterial persisters, where uh, some bacteria tend to do that. This we like to think of as a differentiation or adult uh, progenitor cell model, where you have this small population which is dividing and giving rise to this mass of cells which are very slowly growing. And hopefully we could set them up to grow even slower and slower. But essentially this is a small core of cells which give rise, gives rise to this big mass of slow dividing cells. So uh, summary two, I think I, would, I was trying to tell you that noise is omnipresent. It forces cells to move on these microscopic fitness landscapes uh, depending on what protein is noisy. And these cell division and switching rates are essential to uh, go from cellular to macroscopic population fitness. Um, and this positive feedback can uh, cause memory or heritability over hundreds of cell generations. All right, and here is, I'm gonna skip this, but just very briefly to tell you what we are doing now. We have this environmental fitness landscape, and most of you have heard about the Lansky experiment, and of course, uh, uh, Paul Rainey is doing a long-term evolution experiment. So what we do is, we have this gene circuit integrated into the yeast genome. We grow them 
um, in a constant environment over a long time. This synthetic network is directly relevant to fitness. And we know how uh, fitness is defined based on the models I showed you. Then we try to predict where do cells go for optimality. And the question is, do the solution, does the solution come, come from here? Well, this is a well-defined component, or does it, does it come from elsewhere? It's an interesting question. And just to show you how that happens, this is the positive feedback circuit. Uh, it's a dose response. You saw the mean. This is the average expression. At day four, it looks like this in this experiment. At day six, something happens. This end starts dropping. Then it drops even more, even at earlier inducer concentrations. Um, and overall, if you look at this end, uh, cells start out like here. That's this. Then over days, they develop bimodality, which they shouldn't. They should all stay high. And then finally, they go all low. And then um, this is basically circuit breakage. And if you think about it, cells start from here, out here. But they could do better if they were here, if they were all in low expression state. So that's what they do. They go to low expression state. What's the environment in which you're selecting these? A constant environment? Constant environment, uh, or here it's uh, anhydrous tetracycline, but it's defense only. High level of inducer, which turns on the circuit. So it's actually this situation, where you have a lot of high pressure cells. So you're expecting it to fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. But uh, how it fails, um, um, how wide fails, what are, what are the mechanism is an open question. Here we are looking at mutations. So we repeated this experiment over and over again at this in, um, only inducer concentration. And we noticed these single uh, uh, base changes, uh, substitutions that happen. And they are uh, changing amino acids, or they can sometimes bring you a stop codon. And it's always in this activator. In this condition, you always get it in the activator. So it's the toxic component get that, that disappears. Um, and so basically, you cancel activator function, and you corrupt the circuit. Now, this was here. Um, interesting question is to start at various points of this landscape. Let's see what happens here, where you have only attack, only drug. Do, do cells bring their expression up to protect themselves? Does it come from the circuit? Then you can do, go here, where you have both attack and defense. So here, it's not optimal to be up out here. You would like to go down. But all the way down is not good, because there is a drug. So there are these counteracting pressures. And this is Sewell Wright's fitness landscape. It's a genetic fitness landscape. Here, we have an environmental fitness landscape that we try to use to um, uh, infer evolutionary trends. Is this meaningful? Um, I don't know. but. Basically, a change in inducer changes circuit behavior, which is what mutations do. So there is an argument for looking at this landscape as something informative. OK, this is just uh, showing what cellular landscapes look like in population landscape um, in the four conditions. And these are evolutionary traces. Um, this is the failing circuit. I showed you this blue point circuit. This is fluorescence, average fluorescence of the population, it drops predictably, always. Um, in drug, there is this elevation of fluorescence. Uh, I think there are some measurement errors, but uh, you can see probably that the red points hover over the black points. In the when both drug and inducer are present, we get very interesting down sweeps, um, uh, which we are trying to understand. Um, these are replicate experiments showing 
predictable failure, um, some elevation of uh, expression here, a mild elevation, and these weird fluctuations uh, where some cells switch down and then they go up again. And we are trying to understand it by models. This is how fitness changes, uh, fitness increases over time. And uh, now we are going for whole genome sequencing because it turns out it's not just the circuit all the time. So this is just in the circuit what happened, uh, but with uh, uh, our collaborators, Alex Morozov, and the talented uh, PhD student Michael Manhart from Rutgers, we are analyzing this data and trying to figure out uh, what is the uh, population doing, really. Um, and okay, these are the sweeps. We have some interesting scenario where uh, population dynamics interacts with biochemical dynamics, potentially giving rise to that, but I would probably summarize uh, by saying that synthetic gene networks seem to be interesting research tools for evolutionary biology, and it seems like noise affects evolution, evolution affects noise, and there's a lot to explore about how this model, resistance develops because of fluctuations in the level of expression of genes. I think that helps. So there is another mechanism by which chemoresistance actually develops, which is that cells have different turnover time. Mm -hmm. And chemotherapy only attacks cells which are actually actively turned. Yes, yes. But that's still kind of a diversity scenario where some cells can have higher drug turnover. Yeah. Because chemo chemotherapy is only given acutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. The ones mm -hmm. that escape are the ones that actually Correct. are not turning over in the time. Right. So you're just suggesting an interesting experiment. Thank you. But uh, that so far, we kept the environment constant. But it's uh, very interesting to test pulses and test the uh, heterogeneous population. Excellent. Yeah. So anyway, I'd like to thank at this point to lab members, uh, particularly uh, Rhys Adams, right now a, a postdoc in, in Paris, France. Uh, used to be a PhD student. Dimitri Nivorzai uh, used to be a postdoc, now he's an instructor at MD Anderson. Uh, Caleb Gonzalez and Christian Ray, he's doing the long-term uh, evolution. He's developing models. Um, particularly, we got plasmids from people in Europe. We had discussions uh, with Gurol and, and Jordan. Uh, a lot of people to thank uh, uh, at MD Anderson, we have collaborators. Um, some, uh, I, I always uh, thank Jim Collins. He was a postdoc with him, and he opened my eyes to many things. He's been very supportive even after I left the lab. Um, I have collaborators in New Jersey um, at the uh, University of Houston. Uh, Tim Cooper, I learned a lot from him about experimental evolution. He's a collaborator. Um, Matt Bennett helped me with microfluidics, Olegi Goshin with modeling. I have a new collaborator at the University of Chicago uh, who is helping me with, me with cancer and uh, uh, evolution in, in a cancer context. A very interesting project. Uh, Chaba Paul from Hungary. And the last but not least, uh, our collaborator in this project is Alex Morozov. Um, in terms of funding, I need to thank the uh, NIH Directors Program uh, without this support. This, none of this would have been possible. And we also have uh, support from the NSF. And thank you, sorry, for running over time. I think I'd love to discuss uh, several things and questions that came up. So, so uh, we, we do have time for questions. So are there questions? Uh, I had a question about the modeling. Um, 
I couldn't tell you what slide it was, it was so long ago. Uh, but uh, the modeling of the memory, uh, the differential equations that you showed there. Huh. What was the idea there? I didn't catch it. Okay, so the memory is, is not possible the to model. differential equations? So when you want to fit experimental data, uh -huh. we use a simple uh, linear model. Uh, that's not predictive. That model is, is uh, phenomenological. It's meant to estimate memory from experimental data. And that model I can show you is, is a simple linear model, uh, which looks like this. So basically, you have a high expressor cell population, uh, which is basically gained from low expressors by rising. We call this rising rate. Uh, it's lost by falling. And it's also replenished by growth of high expressors. And then you have a low expressor population, which is, gets gain from, uh, oh, oh, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's lost by these switching up. It's gained by switching down. And it's uh, growing. So this is the model we use to fit experimental data. However, it doesn't tell you anything about uh, the mechanism. Now, when you get to predictive modeling of um, G, switching, G, G, the G's are constants. Yeah, those or are constants. Okay. They are growth rates. So these are um, cell division rates, okay. basically, right. in in the two states. And uh, typically, we have GH uh, smaller than GL, uh, no attack when there is no attack, and we have GH. Uh, larger than GL when we have attack. Um, yeah. So uh, and otherwise we we keep the switching rates constant. So regardless of attack, R and F stay constant. So only the growth rates change. That's the simple model to get switching rates. Um, we um, we actually can can go to stochastic models where we have differential equations describing. Uh, protein amount, um, um, some function of x, and then uh, we convert this into a, a, a Fokker-Planck equation. Um, so uh, there are assumptions you need to make. And then from this Fokker-Planck equation, you can get to something called the Dinkin equation. And then uh, this kind of, uh, it, it gives you the first uh, the uh, barrier crossing rate. So if you have a cell in a landscape, let's say like this, it gives you how long does it take for the cell to... Um, first passage like, time. First passage time, exactly. FPT. That's what it is. It's the first passage time of the cell to move up here. It, it, it's applying your equation with something else because the steady state of this is zero. Uh, I'm sorry? The, the steady state of your equations should be zero. Mm, why? Well, it's GH different from GL, there is no solution. Oh, here? Yes. Um, I'm trying to see why this should be zero. Yeah, one solution is zero. Uh, zero is the trivial solution. There is another one that is not zero? Then. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay, one well, comment. I edited my, my own comment. It's like that. Uh, yeah, I think this treatment is a great one and consistent with the evolutionary genetics. GH, GL are treated as fitness probably, but probably that is a logarithmic fitness. Uh, we say fitness, it is a really expected number of offsprings. 
So instead, mm -hmm. that's a growth rate. So they are relatively business. Therefore, um, you are taking temporal average. They are really uh, averaging the humanistic business. Therefore, the business is Well, basically, here I'm, I'm uh, saying they have constant fitness while they are in the high state. Uh, so the, the basic the problem. So I, I think that that's fine. That that this is a that corresponds to the case where geometric uh, mean uh, is a criteria. So maybe it would be interesting. We have a solution to this, and it relates to the earlier question about the trivial solution. The non-trivial solution is a G. Let's call it G star, and that's going to be. It would be interesting to see how this relates to geometric means. I don't think it's strictly speaking the geometric mean. There is a, a square root and a product, but there are additional terms there. Okay. So uh, I, I would love to actually see how that converts into geometric mean because yeah, yeah. But I'd like to fix that for myself. So maybe we should. I want to. Okay, got you. Okay, okay. So basically, your next generation is 1 plus GH uh, defines the number of cells in the next generation. Okay, okay, okay. So this is, this is basically N uh, plus uh, GH times N. This is the existing cells. Uh, this is uh, delta N, and then you probably multiply that by time. Okay. That, that, that's kind of, uh, yeah. so okay. So this is uh, N, N nu. This is N T plus delta T. Okay, and this is N T, this is N T. This, is, this works now, I think. Yeah, N T, uh, sorry. Delta T, only Oh, sorry, yeah, that's, that's correct. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, 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 that's correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's consistent, perfectly. I now understand. Yeah, I'm just looking at, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, at this one. Mm -hmm. And then when you take this, you're saying that uh, I would like to kind of reconcile this. So if you have time, maybe we should go through those calculations. Um, are there other questions? So, so is there unlimited food in this in this things or? Yes. So right now we have unlimited food, and the way we do this is we resuspend them while they are in, in uh, exponential phase. Uh, yeast cells, we take growth curves. They reach stationary phase in galactose in about 17, 18 hours. So if we resuspend them every 12 hours, they are still in exponential growth, um, meaning that they don't slow down their growth. They are supposed to have plenty of nutrients still. So the assumption is here. But the evolution, though, is tricky, because then to get a person to go in every 12 hours for a month, no Sundays, no holidays is trickier. So there we kind of sometimes go to 24 hour and then you can get a, a nutrient limitation, yeah. So the question is, is if you follow a cell uh, in, in the same cell in a movie, what's a, what's a time, time fluctuation? Of oh yeah, so yeah, that, that was uh, the movies. If you follow one cell, um, now for to me, when a cell divides, it's no longer the same cell. So the, the cell ends um, at the time of division. 
um, if you follow lineages, always single cells, then something funny comes out. If you calculate statistics, means, uh, standard deviations of single cell lineages, they will disagree with population statistics given at a certain time point. And that's because you have the growth effect. And uh, I think uh, people tend to assume that temporal means are the same as population means. In systems like this, they are not. Simpson yeah, 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 exactly. So it's, it's related to that, yeah. But uh, uh, I mean, people, when they do stochastic simulations and all that stuff, they usually do time courses and do statistics there, which is not necessarily correct. Yeah, but, but the Simpson's paradox is, is definitely there. Um, and people need to be more aware of these things. Yeah, yeah okay. Great. Well, let's thank God for it. This was fun. Uh, let me